Amen. I couldn't help but notice as we sang one song after another that that theme of the gospel and, and its triumph is, was so strong that, that God has triumph over sin, that he has saved us, that he has, he has redeemed us, and that that theme was side by side with another. The world is still out of joint. There's still darkness. There's still trouble. And so you see that tension that's in the gospel itself between what we have now experienced and what we anticipate experiencing in the future. Blake spoke to it so beautifully last week. Do you remember he talked about the sun rising on the horizon? Suppose you were the only one who could see it. Everyone else is in darkness, but you see the sun is rising and you know what's going to happen and you live toward that light. You live expecting that light. That is what it means to live as a Christian in this world. There is darkness, but we do have hope because we do know the sun is going to rise and it's already begun to rise in our hearts. That's why we're here. That's why we can rejoice Sometimes in the midst of severe suffering, we can rejoice because, because Jesus, well, he's good and his grace is real and all is well because all will be well. Amen? Amen. We, we sang about that. We sang about that. And I want to talk about that this morning as well. Because when Jesus talks gospel, he says things like, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. What a startling metaphor that is to compare conversion to a new birth. It's so transforming that it's like being born a second time. Nicodemus, a religious leader who had studied Scripture for years, nevertheless was mystified by that teaching. But Jesus meant it quite literally. We are spiritually reborn when we put our faith in him. And yet, and yet he had these disciples who were also human. Their lives had been changed when they encountered Christ. He had called them to follow and they followed, but they made so many mistakes, so many blunders. In some ways, they disappointed the Lord. And yet, and yet, they continued to follow. When Jesus is in the garden, he's, he's now in the shadow of the cross and he's pouring out his soul in prayer. He anticipates the agony that is coming. But while he's praying, what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. At this crucial moment, they're sleeping. And Jesus says to them, wake up. You need to watch and pray. But he uses a phrase. You remember what that phrase was? The spirit, what? The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Huh. Does that describe your life? It does mine. The spirit is willing. He's touched my life and I'm changed dramatically changed. I know that. And yet my humanity seems to drag me down and keep me from being all that I want to be for him and with him. 
I think we all experience that. We all know what that's like. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And when you look at your life, there are areas where you're particularly vulnerable. And again, to quote Blake from last week, he said, you know, we're not machines, we're human beings. And that's really true. So not only do we sometimes fall short, often we don't even understand why. Think about our addictions and our deeply ingrained habits that we don't even understand. I was speaking with a lawyer I'll call Luke. He was a successful lawyer. We're in a small restaurant, um, just in a corner by ourselves. And he was tearing up as he told me he didn't know what he was going to do. He was a husband, a father of two children, as I say, is a, a successful lawyer, a standing in the community, and he had just finished going on another one of his alcoholic binges where he'd just disappear for two or three days, throw his family in disarray, cause panic in his wife, leave the children un completely unsettled, and start new conversations at the law practice, how long can this go on? We've got to do something. So here he was doing the same thing he had done before again and again, and he was a Christian. He was a Christian. He didn't understand what he was doing. He was struggling with himself. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. Doesn't that describe how often... We fall short. And then I think of other people. There's some young man, I'll just call him Cashin. He, he was a piece of work. He was converted to Christ, or at least he certainly seemed to be, but he had a way of just doing crazy things and things that, that caused him more trouble than it needed to. So let's just give you a couple of examples. He, he, you'd find a job for him. He desperately needed a job. Find a job for him. Everything seemed to go fine. And then after a couple of weeks, somebody looked at him the wrong way and he wasn't going to put up with that. And he walks off the job. You want to pull your hair out because now he's desperate again. He needs money. He would, he would lie when it was easier to tell the truth. Have you ever met someone like that? It'd be so easy to tell the truth, but they just lie, and that's what he would do. And so it'd be easy to say, well, he had some sort of experience, some sort of religious experience, but not real conversion. Well, I don't know. I, I can't judge his heart, but I can tell you this. He first used meth when he was four years old. It was in his kitchen where his mom was cooking up a batch. That's how his life began. And it got worse from there. You think about the ditch he was in when he came to Christ, how much damage had been done to him, how much relearning was required. And so, you know, he had his problems, he had his faults. But can't we all relate on some level with that? Have you ever known someone with PTSD? They went to war, fine, and they came home broken, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, maybe struggling with drugs and other life problems. 
I've known a number of people that just seemed like they had been transformed after their experience at war. And we all understand that. Sometimes it happens we're not even aware. I was talking with a friend. We had lunch at George's, oh, probably three or four months ago. And he had served in Iraq, two tours of duty, and it was heavy combat. And I, I said, you know, the thing that strikes me about you is you seem to have passed through all of that unscathed. I know guys that have been, you know, radically harmed by this. How, how did it happen differently for you? And he looked at me and said, I am so aware right now that my back is to that door and I don't know who's coming in and I'm on edge. I wouldn't have known it. He had to tell me. And this is someone who adjusted extremely well after being in combat. We have all these issues and we don't even understand why. How many people, they've been born again and yet they deal with depression and they don't understand why we talk about joy and they don't have joy. And sometimes they start self-medicating and that causes more problems and mood swings and erratic behavior. But we certainly understand why that might happen. And then that can lead to an addiction that becomes part of the whole constellation of problems. So, you know, I don't need to dig too deep into this, but what I'm trying to get across is that we are born again when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a deep spiritual transformation that takes place. And yet, though the spirit yearns to follow Christ, we are still flesh and blood human beings who have learned ways of living, who have habits, who in different ways find it difficult to follow through on their best purposes. Since that is the case, it is extraordinarily helpful to know that Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd of the sheep. Sheep aren't known for being particularly smart and, and forward-thinking animals. They get lost easily. Without the shepherd to take care of them, the shepherd to bring them back to the fold when they stray, the sheep are helpless. But Jesus says he is the shepherd of the sheep. And so in John chapter 10, he develops that idea. And in our life groups this morning, most of our life groups are going to be in John 10, studying that teaching and exploring that metaphor, Jesus as shepherd. What I want to do is focus on one thing he says in John chapter 10. He talks about how he is the shepherd who cares for the sheep, and then he says something about how he deals with those who are his sheep, that is, how he faithfully holds on to them. Let's read the text. It says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. They're one because 
They are working together. We are in the Father's hand and we are in the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. And together, they are protecting us. They're protecting us on the way to final salvation. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And what does he give to his sheep? Eternal life. Therefore, they will never perish. In Greek, that's actually two negatives with a subjunctive, which is a grammatical way of saying they will never, ever perish. It's not going to happen because they belong to me and I've given them eternal life. And there is no one who can snatch them from my hand. And that means that the power of sin, the power of the world, the power of the devil cannot imperil them. All things, no matter how hard or painful, will work together to bring them to that final peace we call eternal life in the presence of God. No one can snatch them out of my hand. What an encouraging word that is to people who find that their spirit is willing but their flesh is weak. To people like you and me. To know that Jesus Christ does not let us go. He does not turn his back on us. We are safe in his hand. The theological term for this is eternal security. That is, we have been given eternal security when we receive Jesus Christ. The sloppy Baptist way of saying it, once saved, always saved. That is, once you have been authentically converted to Christ, you are saved for time and eternity. That's what the passage suggests. So Jesus is saying, I save, and when I save, you're saved forever. You don't get unsaved. You are in my hand, and I'm going to keep you safe. That is so encouraging and so helpful, as I say, for real-life human beings, flesh-and-blood human beings who struggle the way we do, often in, in ways we don't understand. Now, what I want to do is to read some scripture related to this. Not a lot. I have three that I'm going to read. I could pick out a lot of text, but I want you to get the message here about this security that we're talking about. Let's begin with Luke 22. It says, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Those are interesting words. Jesus spoke them shortly before he went to the cross. He had just told his disciples that he conferred on them a kingdom, and that they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. But then he turns to Peter and says, Peter, Satan's wanted you. He's wanted you. But I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Now, he doesn't pray that he will get off scot-free. He's going to face a trial and one that brings him to his knees in humiliating repentance. He is going to three times deny that he knew the Lord. And he was not saved from that trial or that sin. 
but Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. So you see this man entering into the crucible. He's overcome by temptation. He fails, but his faith does not give way. He's held fast. And when he returns, because he will return, you strengthen your brethren. You strengthen them out of what you have received. That's what he's saying to them. So here we see how Jesus operates. It's not as if we are protected from all temptation. It's not as if we are prevented from making some of the bad choices that we do make. But in the midst of it, the Lord does not turn his back. He is still at work and he is interceding for us. And therefore, we will return. We will come back. His hand is on us, or we should say, we are in his hand. There's another text. You're familiar with this verse. Short one, but a wonderful one. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began that good work when he laid hold of you and saved you. Now he's going to carry on that work through every trial, through all temptations, through your triumphs and through your failures. Through all of it, he's going to carry you on until that work is complete and one day you will be whole and you will be holy in the presence of the Lord. Now, the Lord does that because he is radically committed to us. He's made that radical commitment through Jesus Christ. So again, a familiar passage, one that I've probably read as, many, as much as any passage in, in the time that I've been here as pastor of First Woodway. Look what it says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That sounds comprehensive to me. Does it to you? Nothing can separate us from his love. That Christ has placed his love on us. He has called us and we have heard and we have followed and he has begun a good work that he's going to complete. He draws us in and draws us all the way into heaven. That's what Paul's telling us. And this is part of that radical commitment of the Lord. And so eternal security, once saved, always saved. That's an encouraging word for flesh and blood human beings who struggle. You need to know that God does not become your enemy because you struggle. Not so. You turn to him and you find a source of help and grace. Now, this is a very important teaching, but it's also one that's widely misunderstood. And it's misunderstood by many Baptists. And that's because of that phrase, once saved, always saved, 
and the practice we have of praying a sinner's prayer. I'm all for praying a prayer. Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. You know, come into my life, etc. I'm all for praying like that. Of course we pray like that. That's how you receive Christ. But what Baptists have tended to do is to reduce it all to a prayer and then, well, it's done. Now I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. So you'll hear testimonies sometimes. People will give their life to Christ and they'll say, well, you know, I was saved when I was young, when I was a teenager, but it, it meant nothing to me. And then, you know, I went through all these things and now I've, I've come back to Christ. Now, I rejoice when somebody comes back to Christ and I am not going to nitpick their testimony. I just rejoice with them. But in all likelihood, when you hear a testimony like that, they weren't saved in the first place. How in the world do you get saved and it make no difference in your life? I understand how you can get saved and not be perfect. I understand how you can be saved and have lots of problems still to overcome, but for it to make no difference in your life. But that's the way in Baptist circles we've sometimes presented it. You say a prayer and then it's done. And as a result, there are lots of people who think they're Christians and they may or may not be Christians because they said a prayer. You have people who have left the church and left Christ. They're just living their own life their own way and will sometimes say, well, you know, thankfully they're a Christian. Well, how can you be a Christian if you're not following Christ? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And those are the ones who are in his hand that he's protecting. Do you see that? Now, I grant you, that a Christian can get very confused, can be tempted, lured into sin, and can behave in ways that, well, don't look very Christian. I mean, that's absolutely true, which is why it's important for us to not be a judge of everyone. Paul said, you know, don't judge anything before the time. Wait till the Lord comes. The Lord will bring into light that which is in darkness, he says. And he will give everyone what they deserve. So the Lord will judge. We're not, it's not our place to try to figure out how everybody stands with God. But it is important for us to realize that following Christ is the mark of a Christian. If someone is not following Christ, according to Scripture, then they may be a Christian who has temporarily gotten themselves twisted up and pulled aside and lost in a dark place, and the Lord will graciously bring them back, or they may be someone who's not a Christian at all, in spite of whatever prayer they prayed. But still the Lord wants to bring them in because he loves all. The point is we have no assurance of salvation apart from following Christ. Does that make sense? Now, listen, I could read lots of verses. Maybe I have to. Two or three years ago when I said this, I got some people upset because they had learned in Baptist Sunday school for their whole life, once saved, always saved, and they think that I'm somehow, I'm somehow attacking this fundamental truth. I'm not attacking anything. I'm reading the New Testament, and the New Testament's quite clear. For example, 
Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So there are some Jews who hear Jesus, they believe in him. Now, what does it mean in that context to believe in him? Usually in John, if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. But here Jesus says to them, that is those who seemingly believe in him, if you continue in my word, then you're disciples indeed. If you continue in my word. If you don't continue in my word, whatever belief you have, it doesn't constitute discipleship. Do you see that? Again, we're not talking about perfection. Oh my goodness, we're not talking about perfection. But we are talking about authentic conversion. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Isn't that interesting? All of this is true about you. You've been redeemed. It's all true. It's gloriously true. If you persist as a follower, if you don't persist as a follower, there's no indication that that's true. That's what the New Testament teaches. Look what it says in 1 John. Speaking of some false teachers that had left the church, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So in this case, he's saying the fact that they departed, that they apostatized would be the theological word. That is that they rejected Jesus Christ in the gospel. He says they were lured astray by the spirit of antichrist, okay? He says the fact that they left shows that they weren't ever truly believers or they wouldn't have left. Now, where does this put us? I realize, I realize in some ways it's like I just gave something with one hand and I took it away with the other, right? Because we're talking about what an encouragement it is to know that we are eternally secure. And then I'm saying, yeah, but if you're if you're, you're walking away from Christ, there's no reason to believe you're an authentic believer. There's a tension in there, isn't there? But don't blame it on this poor preacher. Read the New Testament. <laughs> right? Read the New Testament. Isn't it there? Those of you who study your Bible, isn't it there? It's there everywhere, isn't it? Here's, there's an old maxim for, that preachers use. You've probably heard it before. What are you supposed to do when you preach? You're supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what, that's what this, the teaching of the New Testament does. Those who are the sheep who, see, who follow Christ and are distressed and discouraged by how poorly they do it, who are worried that somehow their feeble discipleship will close heaven to them, that their struggle with addiction means they don't know anything of God, 
that they struggle with depression means they don't know God at all. They, they worry about those things. The person in that situation needs to take encouragement that the sheep who follow will never, ever perish. No one can snatch them from the Lord's hands. He's at work in your life. He's not going to turn his back on you. On the other hand, the person who says, oh, yeah, great, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And then it may, means nothing in their life. They are just as comfortable in their sin as anybody else. That person needs to wake up and realize that they are, they are testing the patience of God because there is no reason for them to assume they're a Christian if they're not following Christ. There's no proof. And so th there's reason to be deeply concerned. So it's both. It's, it's be comforted if you're struggling, but be warned if you pretty much have no worries about it at all. Do you see the difference there? I know as I say this, I know that some people you're going to find it's going to be distressing to you because you're going to think about a loved one, maybe about your children, and some children who perhaps have made choices that d deeply worry you and concern you. I understand that. And I am not saying that you shouldn't have full hope for their salvation, that the Lord is working in their life. I'm not even saying, certainly, that it couldn't be that they are a Christian, even if they're not behaving like it. I can't see into every heart. So you continue to pray and you continue to trust. Absolutely, that's true. But this is where the New Testament comes down, is where it comes down. So we're going to pray. And I want to ask you, if you're a believer and you're discouraged, would you throw that discouragement off and trust that Jesus Christ is your shepherd and that you will not perish, that nothing can take you out of his hand? He's at work in your life and he's not given up on you. And if you have assumed you're a Christian, but it's the kind of Christianity that makes no difference in your life, I want to ask you to consider if there isn't something more and better for you. True salvation that does change you on the inside. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are indeed with us, that you have died on a cross for our sins. You haven't abandoned us, Lord, but you've given yourself to us. We thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we we seek to serve you and so often fall short. Help us to trust you, knowing that ultimately our salvation is in your hands, that you are the one who gives eternal life, and you're the one who takes us, carries us all the way through to the end. And Lord, we pray for those who perhaps have assumed that they were Christians, but maybe even this morning realize that may not be the case. May you bring them to authentic faith this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.